good evening. Tonight's talk will be about Satipatthana Vipassana. Pali words. I bring up the Pali, I don't want to burden you with foreign words, but bring it up because they're hard to translate and they're often mistranslated. We call the meditation that we practice vipassana. But sometimes you call something, you call what you do, you give it a name because of it describes what you do. In this case, we give it this name, not not because it's what we do, but because it's what we aspire for, aspire towards, aim for. Like when we say uh, car travel, you're traveling in a car or, or even We might say, uh, oh, you're going, going on a trip, a car trip. But that's not what you're actually doing. You're actually driving the car. But driving is one thing and traveling is another. Vipassana is like the traveling, the getting somewhere. So getting somewhere isn't our goal, or sorry, traveling isn't our goal, but it's the reason why we drive. We drive to go somewhere. The goal is, is getting is the somewhere. Vipassana is like the driving, the, the, it's like the traveling. But Satipatthana is the driving. Satipatthana is what we do. We call it vipassana because our aim, our aim is to see clearly. Vi, vi means clearly. Vipassana means seeing. Our aim is seeing clearly. So it's often translated as insight. And that can be misleading. I'm actually thinking it might not be a very good translation. Because insight tends to ha give the impression that it's meant to be somehow intellectual or rational or have to do with thought. So when we hear it described about what vipassana means, we think, well, this is something that I have to I have to understand 
I use words like understanding. It's funny because it's not really a, understanding isn't really a great word either. It can it can be given the proper meaning, but it can also again refer to some kind of intellectual understanding. So it's not about insight so much as it is a clear sight. Again, re means clear. And this is made clear in the in the Buddhist words himself, Buddhist teachings himself. The Buddhist teachings themselves when when he says it's like polishing a lens, wiping away all the grime so you can see through it. It's like polishing a glass or cleaning the glass so you can see clearly. So what is it that we're trying to see clearly? We're trying to see clearly three things. We want to see clearly that inside of ourselves and in the world around us, everything is uncertain, unpredictable, inconstant, impermanent. We want to see clearly that inside of ourselves and in the world around us, nothing is satisfying. Nothing is happiness. Nothing is going to make us happy by taking it as an object. And number three, that inside of ourselves and the world around us and really every single thing, including freedom from suffering, is non-self. Not me, it's not mine, it doesn't have a self, it doesn't have a soul, it doesn't have an entity, it doesn't have a core. And so if you took these as insights, then you'd have to understand what these mean. You'd have to have it explained to you and you'd have to sit and think about whether this was what you were experiencing. Am I really experiencing these three things? Do I even want to? Do I accept these three things as true? Sounds like a somewhat dubious framework within to set your sights and aspirations. But that's not what vipassana means. Vipassana means to see these things clearly. It's not the understanding. You don't even really have to understand them. You don't, you don't need intellectual understanding. When you practice mindfulness, this is what you'll see. How it should be understood is that in our blindness, in our lack of clarity, we cultivate all sorts of wrong ideas about things. And more importantly, we have a wrong relationship 
our perception of things as stable, as predictable, as satisfying, or our perception of things as me and mine. Through the practice of mindfulness, we have come to see that unfortunately this isn't true. The things that we cling to as stable and predictable are not. The things we think of as satisfying actually don't satisfy us, they just create more craving and more suffering when we eventually don't get what we want. Because it's not static, because it's a, it's a process of cultivation and habit forming. It's always changing. Always building and being torn down. When we look at things as me and mine, and even looking at things as having a reality to them, when we practice mindfulness, we see that's not the case. We see that, not that it's not the case, that it's the wrong way of looking at things, that it leads to suffering, really. It leads to clinging and craving, it leads to views and ideas, it leads to perceptions that have no basis in reality. Possessiveness. All of these things can only come in, in, in darkness. They can't come through seeing clearly. And it may seem dreary to suggest that really everything, it sounds like, is bad, right? It actually is exactly the opposite. None of this would be necessary if we weren't suffering, if we weren't stressed, if we didn't have anguish and depression and anxiety and fear all sorts of horrible things in our lives that have nothing to do with meditation practice or Buddhism. You don't need Buddhism to tell you that life can be painful, that we can be overwhelmed by suffering to the point where we don't have a way out. So the, the claim in Buddhism is that well, there's sim a simple reason and quite a simple practice, not easy, but simple practice by which you can change that, by which you can free yourself from the stress and the suffering and the anguish that ultimately comes from not seeing clearly. That when you stop clinging to anything, you stop suffering. It's nothing more than that. 
So I've said before that I've, I, I talked before about vipassana being a goal, and I want to be clear that it's not the goal, but it's the immediate goal of being mindful. We're mindful for the purpose of seeing clearly. Now, seeing clearly, of course, has its own purpose, and that's the ultimate purpose. But in an immediate sense, our goal is to, our immediate goal is to see clearly, see more clearly, and continuously increasing our mental clarity. So we're in darkness. This is the claim being made. Even with all of our science and all of our intellect, we're in darkness. We're in darkness. Darkness just means we've never really, not even really looked. And even when we look, we're not equipped. We don't have the faculties. We don't have the mental fortitude and the mental faculties to see things as they are. You notice this when you start to meditate. You sit down to meditate and you'll find that immediately you're distracted, immediately you're pulled away, you're uh, caught up trying to see things as they are, but suddenly you, an emotion grips you, and a desire for something else, aversion to what you're doing, aversion to the experiences. Meditation in the beginning isn't very meditative. That's the darkness, the inability, the incapacity to see clearly, something that we have to cultivate. And to understand how we cultivate, we, we all have to understand what it is that we're trying to see clearly. What is it that is impermanent? What is it that's unsatisfying? What is it that's non-self? uncontrollable. And the answer is experience. What we're trying to see clearly is, it may even sound somewhat, I mean, to, to, to us as meditators it sounds kind of obvious, but there's a shift that you undergo in meditation practice. Our ordinary way of seeing things is all conceptual. We don't realize this, but the people, the places, the things are all conceptual. And our way of, of seeing is so much out, outside, so much about the world, how we see the world, what we think about the world, how the world sees us, how other people see us. It's all about concept. Who am I? What do I look like? What is my personality? Who are you? What is that? And so our, our mental activity is caught up constantly with, with concepts. When you begin to cultivate mindfulness or sati, the satipatthana part of the 
equation. Your, your perception shifts and you stop looking. Well, you, you gradually move away from the realm of people and places and things and you start to feel the experience. You start to be present. You're aware of the sensations in the body. You're aware of the feelings of pleasure and pain. You're aware of the thoughts in the mind and the emotions and you pull back and you're able to taste this, this very basic, very prime, primary aspect of reality that is experienced before the conceptualizing, before the recognizing of things as people and places, things as good and bad, and me and mine, before all that, there's experience. Everything in our lives, if you think about it, it's the one thing that, 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 is, that you can't do without to have even life or anything. All of our science is dependent on the fact that we can see and hear and smell and taste and feel and, of course, think, cognize. Our relationships, our, our ambitions, our goals, our philosophies, all dependent on experience. It's the very most basic aspect of reality. And so satipatthana is the cultivation of the ability to see this clearly. Because the problem is we don't see clearly. We see, we get glimpses of this in the beginning, especially when we begin to meditate. But we're quickly taken away, as I said, by our emotions, by our distractions by our lack of attention, our lack of focus, our lack of patience. And so Satipatthana is Sati. Sati is the Sati is the practice of Well, the practice by which we come to see clearly. Sati literally means to remember or remembering. And it sounds like an odd word to choose, but the idea behind it is it's not about remembering the past or remembering something in the future. It's like when we say, uh, remember yourself, remember who you are. That's not what we're practicing, but when we say in English, do you not remember, do, have you forgotten that you're in the library, for example? When someone is yelling, you say, have you forgotten? Remember where you are. We sometimes say when we're uh, 
arrogant, we might say, remember your place. Put someone in their place, right? But all of it points to this the concept of, of losing track of the present moment that we have in, in our modern language as well. So this is the the linguistic and, and the reason why we use the word remember. Because it's an apt way of looking at the 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 reality of the situation that we forget. We lose track of the experience in favor of our reactions, our judgments, our emotions our views and beliefs, all of these things. And so sati is about remembering, it's about grasping the object, facing the object, facing rea reality and experience, right? facing experience. Visaya bhimukha bhava, the state of confronting, confronting experience. So the essence of satipatthana, the essence of what we've come to call mindfulness, is uh, is is confronting. If you want to understand it, it's not about manufacturing. Right? Much meditation is about manufacturing, creating new habits. Uh, sati, mindfulness, is about confronting our habits, confronting our own selves, our mind. Patana means the establishment or the foundation. And it refers to this this aspect of, of reality that we call experience. You use experience to cultivate sati. So the Buddha outlined four categories of experience. There's the physical aspect, we call kaya, it's the body. But it means all, well, it's the physical as we experience it through the body. Hardness and softness, stiffness, heat and cold. So all of when we talk about being mindful of walking, walking, we're actually being mindful of the experience of the stiffness, even the heat and the cold as we move our limbs and the, the hardness and the softness. All of that is just being mindful of the body. When we say to ourselves, rising, falling, watching the stomach, it's a stiffness, it's a physical experience. And what this does is it allows us to see clearly. It creates this mental fortitude or mental capacity to see clearly and to break through the uh, delusions, the... the, the 
the habits that we have of clinging to things. When we start to see that this thing that I hold on to is really only moments of experience. How can you cling to a moment of experience? How can you want it? What is wanting? What, what, what are the things that you can want? You can't want a moment of seeing. Wanting can only arise when there's recognition, and this is something that brought me pleasure in the past. And it relies upon this stability, it relies upon controllability, it relies upon concept. And likewise, how can you be averse to something? How can you possibly be uh, angry about a moment of seeing, a moment of hearing? Why does, when you hear loud noises and there again and again, why do you get angry? It's, it seems, it's, it's a, maybe an odd question, but it does seem kind of strange that sound could make us angry. And the answer is, of course, sound can't make you angry. There's much more involved there. Sights and sounds. They only give rise to suffering, or, well, to uh, delusions and, and, and mental misconceptions, and therefore suffering. They only give rise to them because we don't see clearly. There's no way, it in fact seems kind of like a, a, a silly thing to do, to say to yourself, walking, walking, why do I care about walking? That's not the, walking isn't the problem. And that's exactly the point. Walking isn't a problem, but seeing also isn't a problem. Hearing isn't a problem. Reality isn't a problem. It's our reaction to reality, our clinging to it, our misconception of it. sometimes incomprehensible or in hard to understand for meditators why we would say to ourselves seeing, seeing, hearing, hearing. What's the point? None of these things are problems, right? Why do I care about this? If you can live just by seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling and thinking the way we all think we are, right? We think of ourselves first and foremost as being here and now, but our minds are, are most often otherwise occupied in judging and reacting and liking and just constantly throughout our lives, throughout our days, every moment. And if we could learn, which is what we're trying to do through mindfulness, if we can learn to just be here now, let seeing just be seeing. There would be no problem. 
It's not that there's some profound insight to be had from saying to yourself, seeing, seeing. If you're waiting for that insight, I can tell you, no, stop. Save yourself, that is torture. It's not insight, it's clear sight, vipassana. You think you, when you say seeing, seeing that you see it as seeing? Yeah. Not when you first start. But you will get catch glimpses, right? And you will see. Now I am knowing this is this right foot moving. Yes, you will see many things along the way that, oh, I was clinging to this, and that was why it was causing me suffering. Oh, I was angry with that. I'm attached to this. All of the lobha, dosa, moha, greed, anger, and delusion, all of the many kinds of these, wanting things, liking things, needing things, not liking things, disliking things, boredom, sadness, depression, anxiety, or not anxiety, boredom, sadness, fear, uh, frustration, and then delusion, things like anxiety or um, restlessness, doubt, confusion, ego, uh, arrogance, conceit, low self-esteem, high self-esteem. It's not that there's anything really deep or profound to be had. And I don't want to trivialize the Buddha's teaching, I don't mean to, but it's really just to get rid of all this stuff. Once all that stuff's gone, and well, the Buddha said, Dite dita matang bhavisati, let seeing just be seeing. That's really the path, that's really the, the way we're going. There's nothing behind that. There's no deep intellectual conversation that needs to be had about what's behind the seeing. What does impermanence mean? We don't need to really have an intellectual conversation about it. When you cultivate mindfulness, you'll, if anyone ever asks you, so, what's reality like? Is it, is it stable and constant? Oh, no, no. You'll be able to tell them it's chaotic, it's unpredictable very complicated, there's so many factors and it's all mushing together but ultimately it's just moments seeing just lasts a moment, hearing lasts a moment so if you found something that's going to satisfy you if you hold on to it, is there anything that you know, this is dukkha which is translated as suffering but you have to understand if, if we are too strong on the suffering side people get kind of Afraid, really. Buddha used the word suffering because, uh, well, it, it's used in the sense of causing suffering. Like a fire. If you say, oh, that fire over there is really hot, huh? Well, it's not hot unless you feel the heat. Right? Hot is, of course, relative. It's, it's, a, it's actually a, an aspect of experience. Without someone to experience, there's no such thing as hot. And so the same goes with reality. Suffering 
um, when you cling to it, when, when you hold on to it, meaning it's, it's not going to satisfy you. So that's why we say not satisfying. So, you know, when you hold on to a person, I mean, very common ones, right? People we cling to, we say, person, I love this person so much and they make me so happy. And then wham, suddenly they do something you don't like. It's unpredictable. We don't think of it that way, but that's the truth of it. Even when a person dies, the truth of it is that experience has changed. We don't stop seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or feeling and thinking, but the concept which we clung to as stable, as satisfying, as controllable, predictable, was not. So if someone asks you, is, is there something that's going to satisfy you? Is there something that you can cling to? Is, oh no, clinging is not good. What about self? Is there any good to, is there any reason or any rationale to cling to things, to hold on to something, to hold something as self, or to try to possess things, to really conceive of things as me and mine? It's an interesting question because me and mine is such an important part of our lives. So it was quite profound, and this is the profundity. It's, so it's very simple, but it was such a blow, and it's still such a shock when people hear that the Buddha taught. He taught against this. He criticized. He said, this is ahankara, mamankara, I-making, my-making. To actually question that, question possession, mine, mamankara. But there's nothing that's me or mine. It doesn't even have a place. There's nothing by which a moment of experiencing, of seeing, doesn't have anything to do with me. I mean, except in the intellectual sense of it's me who's experiencing it, but there's no me involved. It's not like my soul suddenly jumps out and sees things. It's just a moment of experience. It's gone. There's no mind to it either. It comes and it goes. And because reality is made up of these moments of experience, our, our attachments to things is always going to be fraught with problems because they come and they go, they break, they change. They're not real. They're not they're not a good description of what is real. Reality is moments. So I think a lot of this is familiar familiar territory, but I wanted to start at the beginning normally when 
Every time you come to do a course with my teacher, you always go over this again. So in, in, in reference to that, I think, instead of, where, where we, we don't do a formal ceremony here, we may, and we could, we have before, but I've taken it, I've taken on the, uh, I've taken up the, um, the benefit and the goodness and the, the virtue, the virtue of in, informality. I think there is a virtue to it. There can be a virtue to ceremony and formality. But informality helps remind us that this is just life. This is not some religious or mystical or magical thing. It really is about doing the dishes and sweeping the floor and eating and drinking and urinating and defecating and showering. And we shouldn't separate our practice or your life here. I don't want this to become a you know, we don't want to reify the meditation course experience. It shouldn't be reify, meaning make it into a thing. So you come here, wow, I did the meditation course, then you go home. You're no longer meditating. That being said, I think we could, there is benefit to the formality of a, of a ceremony and uh, subsequent talks. But consider this to be our introduction talk because we've started fresh, it's the new year and you're all freshly come here to the center. Now thank you all for being patient and listening. It's a great thing to come together to listen to the Dhamma, whoever's teaching it. So appreciate and I appreciate all your practice, continuing practice here. So, have a good night. I'll see you all in the morning. I also recorded this on the internet. I don't know if they can actually hear me.